Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. We are just too excited for this episode. We are bringing back one of our guest hosts, Dr. Richa Gupta. You may remember her from episode 16, Heart Transplantation 101 with Dr. Joanne Lindenfield. We also recently produced a popular two-part YouTube series on myocarditis with Richa as well. Well, she cannot get enough myocarditis education and rounded up an international consortium of fantastic experts for this great discussion, but I'll let her tell you about what's going to happen. Thanks, Dan. Hi, everyone. My name is Richa Gupta. I'm a cardiology fellow at Vanderbilt University Medical Center going into advanced heart failure. We will be joined today by Dr. Joanne Lindenfeld and Dr. Javid Moslehi from my institution, Vanderbilt. And then we have a very special guest from Milan, Dr. Enrico Amirati, who's taken time out of his busy clinical schedule to be with us today. He's actually been on service at his hospital in Milan taking care of COVID-19 patients. And we're so grateful that he can be with us to share his expertise and experience. With the advent of COVID-19, there have been case reports of COVID-19 myocarditis treated with steroids, IVIG, and immunosuppression. The incident is really not known, but there's an increasing number of case reports and anecdotes of clinical presentations of COVID-19 infected patients with what we clinically suspect to be acute myocarditis, patients who come in with STEMI or NSTEMI mimics, reduced EF, wall motion abnormality, or abnormal EKGs. And on cath, they aren't found to have a culprit lesion to explain explain their presentation. And so there's been a lot of discussion and questions among the cardiology community about how to distinguish this entity from other mechanisms of myocardial injury and treat it. And so in this interview, we'll take a step back and review what we know about myocarditis in general, and then we'll discuss myocarditis in the context of COVID-19. Lastly, because we have two transplant cardiologists with us, we will touch a bit on how the pandemic is affecting transplant programs. Wow, Richa, you are blowing my mind as usual. I'm just still totally amazed by how you were able to coordinate this discussion with so many phenomenal experts. And really, this episode for me is just a great example of how the COVID era is bringing people together in so many special ways. Here, for this episode, we feature three leading experts with three dedicated cardio nerds from four different institutions across two countries. Can't wait to dive into this one. Friends, just remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning about more cardiology in the COVID era directly from expert cardio nerds. This discussion ended up being such a rich treasure trove of pearls that we decided to split it up into two separate parts. In this current episode 29, we cover the basics of myocarditis. In episode 30, we get to myocarditis in the COVID era. Don't forget to tune into episode 31, our case discussion on myocarditis based on a real patient that Dan took care of, which we use to establish the foundations for understanding all things myocarditis. Hey, Cardio Nerds, we are so excited for the discussion that's about to unfold. But first, let's introduce you to our expert guests. Dr. Enrico Amirati 
is an assistant professor of cardiology and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist in Milan, Italy at the Niguarda Hospital with a special research interest and expertise in acute myocarditis and acute heart failure. He is a fellow of the European Society of Cardiology and has won numerous awards. He has also published incredibly important work on the distinction between fulminant and non-fulminant myocarditis and the prognostic implications of histologic subtypes. His research interests also include the role of adaptive immunity in heart transplantation and atherosclerosis, and he is the author of well over 100 peer-reviewed publications. Dr. Joanne Lindenfeld is a professor of medicine and the director of the Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiology Division at the Vanderbilt Heart and Vascular Institute. She's the past president of the Heart Failure Society of America, serves on editorial boards for numerous journals, including Jack, Jack Heart Failure, and Journal of Heart-Lung Transplant. She's a member of the AHA, ACC, HFSA Heart Failure Guideline Writing Committee, was previously chair of the HFSA Practice Guidelines for the 2006 and 2010 guidelines. In addition, she's been an investigator in a number of large-scale clinical trials, including the COAP trial. And most importantly for me, she's been an incredible all-around mentor. Finally, we are very excited to also have with us today Dr. Javin Moslehi, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where he is the Director of the Cardio-Oncology Program. He is a clinical cardiologist and basic translational biologist interested in cardiovascular complications associated with novel molecular targeted cancer therapies and the implication of these on our knowledge of basic cardiovascular biology. At Vanderbilt, he runs an independent basic and translational research laboratory and a program with a focus on signal transduction in the myocardium and vasculature, as well as establishing preclinical models of cardiotoxicity involving novel targeted oncologic therapies. Ayurveda, it's all you. Okay. Well, Dr. Amirati, Dr. Lindenfeld, and Dr. Moslehi, I wanted to thank you all so much again for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. Dr. Lindenfeld and Dr. Moslehi, I, I wanted to start with a question for you two. So we're about to get into a broad overview of myocarditis in general and with respect to COVID-19 specifically in this interview. Before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about the study that you two are organizing to look at myocardial tissue samples in COVID-19? patients. Javid, why don't you go ahead because this you started this with the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Yeah, so we we are as a group fundamentally interested in using novel immunological technologies to assess the uh, cardiovascular inflammatory characteristics of myocarditis. We have have a, a lot of new technologies that have been developed by our oncology colleagues and immunology colleagues to better uh, classify myocarditis. And so we're interested in the potential for COVID-19 to be associated with myocarditis in certain cases, and we're better uh, interested in characterizing these. So we have started in collaboration with Dr. Lindenfeld gathering autopsy and biopsy cases from COVID-19 patients to better understand what the mechanism of myocardial injury is, whether this is true myocarditis in the classic sense of the word, and we'll get into what that is momentarily, or whether this is the mechanism of myocardial injury may be very different. To do this, we'll use a, no a lot of novel technologies, including uh, looking specifically at immunological subpopulations, looking to assess whether the myocyte and or other cells are infected with the virus itself, and using a lot of other technologies. We can get uh, fresh tissue, for example, doing techniques like mass cytometry, cytoff, to better better understand the specific immune populations that may be involved in this process. 
Again, this is all an if, provided that COVID-19 cardiovascular issues fall into classic myocarditis paradigms. And we'll discuss that momentarily as to what that is. Thank you for going over that, Dr. Maslehi. And I want to reiterate that Dr. Lindenfeld, Dr. Maslehi, Dr. Amoretti, this is such a great opportunity for all of us to learn from you. I can't think of a better group of individuals to discuss myocarditis. And before we get started, Dr. Lindenfeld, I have one key question for you. What is myocarditis? Well, Mark, Myocarditis is an inflammatory disease in the myocardium, and then we can go on as we talk about how to make the diagnosis. Established myocarditis is usually demonstrated by a positive biopsy or autopsy specimen, and then there's a whole range of definitions for suspected myocarditis. It really seems that there are a lot of different ways to classify myocarditis, and Dr. Amirati, you've done a lot of work in this already. I think you know the most about this. How do you classify myocarditis? There is a practical approach, a clinical approach, and uh, in my view can be uh, divided based on the expected prognosis. So we can divide the uncomplicated presentation, patients with the presentation without what we call the presence of a left ventricular ejection fraction below 50% on first echo or without presence of ventricular arrhythmias or presence of of symptoms of heart failure or presence of fulminant presentation, that means uh, hemodynamical instability. All these features can characterize uh, a complicated presentation. So we have uh, uh, shown in the so-called Lombardy Registry that has been published uh, in 2018 in circulation that uh, complicated presentation as a by far worse prognosis than a patient with uncomplicated presentation. This is true, of course, for acute myocarditis. So that means for an acute episodes in patients that are without previous history of heart failure or known cardiomyopathy. Of course, that means that all these patients had symptoms within one month. Then there is another kind of consideration that is related to the time. So when is the, the, the onset of the symptoms? So we can divide a patient with inflammatory cardiomyopathies that is still a form of myocarditis comparing with patient with acute myocarditis. Then we have a, a difference based on on the etiology, and so we have uh, the most common form that is induced by viruses, but uh, uh, another common form is, uh, are the myocarditis that are, that are associated with immune disorders or associated with the drugs, in particular, for instance, the, the new immune checkpoints uh, inhibitors. But And then we can have also other forms, uh, for instance, uh, allergic forms. Then finally, we have, if, if we perform a, an endomyocardial biopsy or we have a post-mortem examination, then we can divide the uh, myocarditis based on the type of inflammatory cells. So we have a giant cell myocarditis that, that are also uh, the forms with the, the worst prognosis, isonophilic myocarditis, lymphocytic myocarditis, that is the, the, the most common form that is typically associated with uh, virus infection or with immune checkpoints inhibitors. 
And then finally, we have granulomatosis myocarditis, uh, and a typical example is, uh, is the myocarditis associated with the cardiac sarcoidosis. Wow, thank you so much for that. And the, the classification schemes are really helpful. So we have a clinical classification, histological classification, and then a classification based on etiology. I echo Ahmed's sentiments. This is Dan Ambinder here. We are just so humbled to have you all on our show and just so appreciative for Richa for helping coordinate this. So for you, Dr. Lindenfeld, taking it back to the bare basics, how would you clinically diagnose myocarditis? And this could be before the COVID era. The uh, uh, diagnosis is uh, is a little bit difficult only because all of the signs and symptoms are very nonspecific. But I think in general, a clinical suspicion would be in one of four major syndromes. And the best description of this is, I think, in the European Society of Cardiology Review in 2013, the white paper about this. But if you suspect myocarditis and, and then have a biopsy, confirm myocarditis as a positive biopsy, which used to be considered by the Dallas Criteria. And the Dallas Criteria published in 1985 for used for a long time, and they require evidence of inflammatory infiltrates within the myocardium, but also evidence of myocardial disruption and necrosis, which is not typically ischemic or contraction band type necrosis. But more recently, people have added a number of other immunohistochemical criteria, and the European Society proposed a, a number of things, that there be at least 14 white cells per millimeter squared, or four monocytes, and three CD3 positive lymphocytes. Those are all still suggestions and not definite, but they seem to enhance the Dallas criteria, which we'll get back to later. So if you suspect clinical myocarditis based on signs and symptoms, and they've also described in that nice paper four clinical syndromes, and I think it's interesting that it really mirrors the four patients, or at least three of the four patients just published in circulation last week by the Columbia Group. And that is the clinical presentations are acute chest pain, particularly with features of pericarditis, or sort of non-ischemic chest pain. Uh, it can be ischemic though, however or new onset, evidence of heart failure, worsening of dyspnea or fatigue or other signs of heart failure, a subacute or more chronic presentation, and then palpitations or other arrhythmias, syncope or presyncope or heart block or unexplained cardiogenic shock. So one of those presentations should suggest myocarditis. And if you have any of those things, then what they have suggested is, and we'll talk back about when biopsy, if it's not confirmed by a biopsy, then suspected myocarditis suggested that you have one of these clinical syndromes plus one diagnostic criteria that's abnormal. And the diagnostic criteria suggested would be things such as EKG changes, any arrhythmias, markers of myocytolysis such as troponin elevation, any functional or structural abnormalities on cardiac imaging such as primarily echo and or cardiac magnetic resonance imaging, and now more recently tissue characteristics of uh, cardiac magnetic resonance imaging such as delayed gadolinium contrast enhancement and or T2 weighting that demonstrates edema and or inflammation. So you should have one of each of those for suspected myocarditis, if at all possible. Uh, in the absence of symptoms, if for some reason you suspect myocarditis, then you should have at least one or more of both of those, in, in addition to some other features such as fever. So that would probably be right now the single most altogether way to make the diagnosis. That's a great summary. Out of all of the things that you mentioned, are there certain tests that we do that really confirm the diagnosis, or do we need these tests to confirm the diagnosis of myocarditis? Dr. Mosleyhe, maybe you could take that question. Yeah, so thank you very much. So I I want to echo everything Dr. Lindenfeld just mentioned and just also give you a perspective from where I come from, which is in the cardio-oncology world, we have cancer patients who get immunotherapies where there may be the possibility of myocarditis and where 
confirming the diagnosis would be particularly imperative in these patients because A, you may withhold life-saving therapy in these patients and or give them fairly potent therapies to potentially attenuate the characteristics of myocarditis. So in that scenario, we want to be sure that the patient does have myocarditis as sure as we can. So in collaboration with Dr. Mark Benaka, who is now at the University of Colorado, we last year we kind of created at least some proposed definitions of myocarditis that may uh, be especially relevant in the clinical trial population or a large database population. And this is a paper that was published in circulation last year. So that in all cases, given that the manifestations, clinical manifestations of myocarditis may be fairly nonspecific and associated with other cardiac issues such as acute coronary syndrome, I think we have developed a hierarchical definition accounting for different levels of evidence. For all diagnoses, it's important, I think, to exclude things like acute coronary syndrome. In addition, with for definite myocarditis, I think we have to take a multi-pronged approach where either you have the syndrome, clinical characteristics, potential EKG changes, but also other things, and that includes possibly pathology, which is what we consider gold standard, diagnostic uh, cardiac MRI, which Dr. Lindenfeld just went over, as well as potentially other imaging modalities, if the other two cannot be obtained, to feel confident that the patient has myocarditis. So I think if I could say one thing, it's important to rule out other causes of myocarditis, but it's also important to take a multi-pronged approach and not just use one technique, be it imaging or pathology, uh, to speak for all forms of myocarditis. That makes a lot of sense. So if I could just sort of summarize what you said. So in certain types of myocarditis, biopsy plays a huge role in making sure that you know we're not calling myocarditis something else. For instance, another mimic like acute coronary syndrome or some sort of other cardiotoxicity that's mimicking the myocarditis. And it seems that the pathology can really dictate therapy. So biopsy seems to be really important. And then like you said, just multimodality diagnosis using imaging to cardiac MRI and then the whole syndrome. One question that a lot of people have is, you know, why don't we do a biopsy on everybody? Dr. Linderfeld, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, who who do we really reserve it for? Well, to echo what Dr. Moslehi just said, one is that we want to do a biopsy to determine if that we've excluded other things, but is there something that we can treat, number one? And also we want to do a biopsy if we think it might provide prognostic information. The classic case would be in giant cell myocarditis, where we think if, if you have that diagnosis, you're going to probably almost certainly need a transplant. Uh, so those are important issues. And does the patient have a course that suggests they're not likely to improve? The reason we don't do those in everyone is many cases of myocarditis are much more mild and it appears that the patient is improving. And so we, we don't think we need to take the risk. And while there is a small risk to biopsy, and I would point out we always worry about cardiac tamponade uh, as a risk for these biopsies. And that happens probably in the range of 1% or 2%. And it, we have to be careful we're not lulled a little bit that the risk of biopsy seems to be less in the average transplant patient, which is where most of us do the majority of our biopsies, than it is in the cardiomyopathy patients. So there, there is a risk to this, but we also can't forget the risk of damaging the tricuspid valve, which could be a really pretty big risk several years down the line if we create severe tricuspid regurgitation. So that's number one. 
Number two is that the biopsies themselves are not very sensitive. Even when we get three or four pieces of tissue, good pieces of tissue, the uh, sensitivity of that is poor any given disease. So the, the biopsies are often not positive. So when you take a fairly low risk group, it may not be helpful to do biopsies in those patients. So those would be the major reasons, I think. Yeah, may I add a comment? We have exactly, we perform a quite a large number of endomyocardial biopsy within the patients with left ventricle ejection fraction between 50 to 40 percent and with positive cardiac magnetic resonance. But at the end, in this patient, we have a right vent- ventricular approach to biopsy, but uh, the proportion of positive case is quite low. So there is no real improvement. And also the fact that we can find some macrophages or few lymphocytes, we don't really know if it's specific, specific enough to say that this is a specific subtype of myocarditis or if it can really guide the therapy. At the end, probably in this group of patients, cardiac magnetic resonance is still more useful because we have a full overview of the involvement of the heart. But uh, when you have a sy- heart failure symptoms, ventricular tachycardia, or a very reduced uh, ejection fraction, I believe that uh, endomyocardial biopsy is very important and can be by far more uh, accurate and more sensitive than in, uh, in patients with uh, mild uh, left ventricular uh, systolic dysfunction. Completely agree. And I think the one other issue is that We know from the myocarditis treatment trial that across a broad spectrum of pathologists, there's a marked variation in reading these biopsies. In all the criteria for the biopsies, there's a pretty big variation. Even in giant cell biopsies, there was a fairly good variation. So that's another issue with endomyocardial biopsy. Fully agree. As for this reason, I I prefer the U.S. perspective comparing with the European perspective that, uh, in my view, it simplifies uh, some uh, some issues, saying that uh, adding some immunohistochemistry can increase accuracy, but uh, at the end, in my view, you can increase uh, sensitivity, but you can lose uh, specificity, as we can have uh, cardiomyopathy or even dilated cardiomyopathy with presence of macrophages. And at the end, you are not sure that is a myo-inflammatory cardiomyopathy or is a common findings that you can have in case of dilated cardiomyopathy. Exactly right. I see. So from what I'm hearing, it sounds like MRI can kind of give you a global assessment of inflammation, and we can sort of use the Lake Louise criteria to say whether or not myocarditis is present. Histology can be helpful, but might be lower yield if we happen to not be biopsying the area that actually has disease in it. And then sometimes we, it sounds like we just don't know what to do with the biopsy result, depending on sort of what the cell milieu is. Dr. Amaradi, could you speak a little bit about the different forms of myocarditis? And uh, I wanted to sort of switch gears to talking about fulminant myocarditis. So what are the major causes of fulminant myocarditis and the features that distinguish them? Recently, we revised uh, in an international registry, including more than uh, 200 patients, the the outcome of fulminant myocarditis. So the first point was that comparing to what was known uh, before, uh, the need for heart transplant or, or the rate of death at uh, 60 days after admission, the, the rate of a heart transplant and death is around 
30%. So the, the outcome is quite dismal. And what we have seen is that there is a significant difference as expected between patients presenting with a fulminant myocarditis caused by a giant cell myocarditis comparing with lymphocytes, uh, lymphocytic or eosinophilic myocarditis. And this is a very useful point. In fact, uh, we have seen that in, in the group of patients with giant cell myocarditis, the need for heart transplant or death at 60 days, it was around more than 60%. The point is that uh, when you have uh, the most uh, common form is the lymphocytic myocarditis, uh, while uh, isonophilic and giant cell myocarditis uh, uh, represent about uh, 10% of all fulminant myocarditis. So they, they represent around 10% of these uh, rare form of myocarditis. And uh, the important issues, while uh, sarcoidotic myocarditis presenting uh, as uh, fulminant myocarditis are really rare. We had just uh, two cases. The important piece of information that you can have from histology is that you can also decide if you treat with immunosuppressive drugs uh, this patient. In particular, with giant cell myocarditis, we know that we have to use several drugs, in particular anti-thymocytes or anti-T-cells drugs. And for eosinophilic myocarditis, we generally use steroids, high dosage of methylprednisolone. In our experience, we use also in lymphocytic myocarditis, high dosage of methylprednisolone, even if there is no clear evidence of efficacy. But this point can be related to the fact that we are used to, to, to treat this patient when they have reject in heart transplant. So the model that we follow is that of acute severe reject in a planted patient. And when we think about MTT trial, most of patients were, uh, were enrolled after two weeks since the onset of symptoms. And that could be also a reason why there was no demonstrated benefit from immunosuppression. So my, my view on this, uh, on this issue is that we need uh, new clinical trials to demonstrate also in fulminant myocarditis caused by a lymphocytic infiltration that uh, steroids can be useful. I don't know what is the um, the point of view of other speakers on this point. Yeah, I think we agree we need better information than we have now, especially in some of these cases of fulminant high-dose immunosuppression leads to infection complications while we're in supporting the patient. So we definitely could use better data than we have right now. No doubt about it. Yeah, and it seems like practice uh, really varies from place to place in terms of immunosuppression for lymphocytic myocarditis. Dr. Moslehi, are you still on the line with us? Yes, still. Uh, I can have another few minutes. Unfortunately, then I have to go to the AHA me- meeting. So I can put a couple of quick blurbs if you want. Sure. Uh, from a cardio-oncology perspective. I think uh, I, I come from this not as a myocarditis expert, which Dr. Lindenfeld and Amorati are, but rather as a basic mycite biologist as well as a cardio-oncologist. So with new immunotherapies, we have recognized the new syndromes of myocardial injury that's probably due to inflammation. These include myocarditis in the classic sense of the word that we see with immune checkpoint inhibitors, where you have infiltration of the myocyte with immune cells as well as myocardial 
myocardial death, as well as other syndromes where we can have myocardial injury because of classic immunotherapy. So these include, for example, CAR T cells, which can cause various forms of cardiac injury. It's unclear whether this latter syndrome is a classic myocarditis or not. Uh, so I think for now, we really have to go back to the basics and think about what can we learn more from the tissue. And I actually am somebody who advocates for all fulminant myocarditis cases to be able to get tissue because what we can do with tissue now in 2020 is much, much better, even if it's just paraffin embedded tissue, in terms of characterizing and delineating the mechanisms of inflammation and inflammatory cardiac disease. There are so many new techniques now that allow us to do this, where we understand a syndrome that we truthfully don't understand that well as a, as a group better. So I would advocate for that. And I also, as a last parting word, I just want to kind of bring up this potential similarities with cancer immunotherapies, which can cause cardiovascular issues. And these include cell-based therapies, or in the old days, antibodies-based therapies like IL-2, which can cause both cardiac and vascular disease. And it's possible that the same syndrome is uh, recapitulated with COVID-19. For example, we know from excellent study, this uh, very nice studies by our uh, Chinese colleagues, that uh, we know that uh, there is elevation of cytokines and attenuating the cytokine levels with drugs like tocilizumab, which is an IL-6 receptor inhibitor, can be helpful in terms of uh, attenuating the patient's symptoms. Yes, go ahead and go to your meeting. Thank you so much for contributing. Dr. Moslehi was saying is we really understand what's going on at the molecular and histologic level better in myocarditis, and we understand the mechanism better, we can, that'll inform our therapies and give us new therapeutic targets that we can use to treat these patients is, is sort of what I'm getting. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now, a flutter moment. Fellow CardioNerds and healthcare heroes throughout the globe are working hard to fight this global COVID-19 epidemic. The following uplifting song by Dr. Matthew Feynman and Beth Feynman from the Cleveland Clinic definitely made our hearts flutter. Thank you all for the work you're doing. Hi, I'm Matthew Feynman, internal medicine at Cleveland Clinic. Hi, I'm Beth Feynman. I'm a nurse practitioner at the Tossic Cancer Center at Cleveland Clinic. And we have a little song for you. I don't mind you coming here and saving all those lives. You're all superheroes. Working the front lines, yeah. You're all superheroes. Job out there. Stay safe and, and God, God bless. bless. Bye. Bye.